Welcome to Go Write Yourself, the only podcast dedicated to telling you to get off your lazy butt and go write yourself. yourself. There we go. We've got right, quite a today... fun, interesting new show uh, lined up today. Yes, today we have a special treat for all you listeners. Our very first interview. Oh my God, it's That's happening. Right. We're big enough to have people on the show now. Right. So all you dedicated four listeners out there, good for you, because uh, you're going to hear something awesome today. And it is awesome. We have uh, Sean Gam. He's uh, very extremely prolific, and I think what will strike you is how knowledgeable, earnest, and in a sense, old school in a good way. I feel like he's preserving something of a quality that has been sadly too fast running out of society. Like he's cultured, he knows what good writing is, he has high standards, and he loves stuff that is good. And he yes, wants other did. people to love and appreciate good stuff. Yes, he's a very big student of the classics, uh, very knowledgeable man, uh, teaches at a university level. I hope you enjoy. And after you've enjoyed, get out and go write yourself. There you go. Here we have uh, Sean Gabb, author of about 40 books under his own name and 18 more novels uh, under the pseudonym Richard Blake. Uh, he's published about a thousand essays and news articles. He's reshaped the Aeneid, the Aeneid into a more accessible form of Latin. And generally, his authorship provides readers with an informed and entertaining view on history. And uh, Mr. Gab, you are our first uh, guest here on Go Write Yourself. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for that most flattering introduction. <laughs> of course. Uh, we're very interested. Just saying the facts. Well. Very, few, very few people can manage to write 40 books. Some of us can't, uh, let alone can't write, can't get four past the finish line. So it's really very impressive what you've managed to do, I think. Okay. Yeah, we're very interested into um, probably specifically uh, just what made you uh, kind of decide that you wanted to become a writer. Uh, if you can, if you can remember back to the 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 impetus of uh, of what what do you think uh, uh, the reason that you decided to express yourself in words? Vanity, money. <laughs> And it's interesting. I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always liked writing. I've always, I may not be a very good writer, but I do write with fluency and confidence, which is what is absolutely essential if you want to be a writer. And mm. so I'm a writer. I once said that if I were not able to write, I would give up the will to live. It is mm. part of my life. Mm joy looking at the computer and I enjoy watching the word count going up and up and up mm. when you're writing non-fiction that can be a bit of a hard grind because you need to make sure that your arguments are in the right sequence you need to make you need to make sure that you're writing persuasively writing fiction is an altogether different matter because it is for me and for a number of other writers, a voyage of discovery. And if it works out, 
as it often does, you look back at it and say, how did I do that? I don't think I can do that again. But you then carry on to see if you can do it, if you can do it better or the same, or if you haven't declined too much, depending on your mood at the time. But fiction, writing fiction, is much more exciting than reading it, because in a sense you're in control, and in a sense you're not. The plots as they emerge are as surprising to me and perhaps sometimes more surprising than they are to the readers. Now, see, yeah. that's, that's a curious point to make because um, a lot of people kind of uh, do the storyboard tactic nowadays where they, they tend to plan out uh, lots of story beats and then try to unfold them uh, individually so they sort of have like a, a full picture painted even before they start. But that's interesting. Uh, what what you sound like you you sound like you write in a kind of a linear fashion when it comes to plot where uh things are happening sort of as you as you progress i don't i don't want to knock anyone else's method of writing whatever works is the best system for you and so yes there are writers there are fiction writers who will start by working out the plot there are writers who will begin by, science fiction writers, shall we say, my late friend Ill Neil Smith was a good example of this. If he wanted to set a novel on Mars several hundred years after colonization, he'd begin by writing a series of essays, which he wouldn't publish to the world, but he would sometimes share them with me, in which he outlined the political and social and economic structures of this Martian society. He would also discuss the, the technological aspects of Mars colonization. There are writers who do that, and then there are writers who make up a plot, and the whole thing takes eight or nine pages, detailed twists and turns, and a conclusion to which, to which the writer will work. There are writers who will who will draw pictures of the characters and give them full background biographies and they will have the pictures of their characters on the wall in front of them so that they can look up from typing and ask what would that young woman do in the situation that I've put her if it works if that's how you do it that I'm not going to knock it. That is the way that works for some people, and it works for some people with conspicuous success. All I can say is that it doesn't work for me. Mm. What I do is I just write and see what happens. And sometimes I realise that I've written myself into a plot that I don't like, and I go away and think about it and come back and change it. And that's roughly how it works. I did say a while ago that I wouldn't write another novel because for some rather unfortunate political reasons in 19... say some rather unfortunate political reasons in 2011 and 2012, my novels suddenly stopped making significant money. And although writing fiction is good fun, I do need to put food on the table. And so if writing doesn't do that, I have to scale back on it. However, a few weeks ago, 
I was playing around with an artificial intelligence engine generating book covers and I generated a picture which had no relevance to what I wanted but it was something so completely wonderful that I immediately wrote the first chapter of a new novel and then I wrote another chapter and then another and I'm presently up to about 60,000 words and I'm rather hoping to have the first draft finished probably early January it'll be about a hundred thousand words and I didn't expect that I would do that but you see that's how I write I don't know that I'm going to write and then I don't know what I'm going to write it emerges sounds that's like really beautiful. a process yeah I remember when I was in university I had was I used to like play, writing plays and one of the best experiences I had was when I felt the characters started writing themselves mm. by this point I was a few scenes in and I maybe thought I had an idea of how it was going to go but I started saying well if he said this then she would say this and if well if she said that then he'd say this and I had no conception before starting the scene that it was going to go this way but those were typically the best scenes I ever mm. wrote one yes. of the things you said huh. is that you write with fluency and confidence even though you may not be a good writer those are the two essential things so given those are the two essential things what do you think makes a good writer and uh, what what i guess that can segue into the kinds of things that you enjoy as a reader and think makes the writer good you need to be able to write decent english that's non-negotiable you need to have a good command of the language so that you're not endlessly repeating yourself and so that readers do not look up from your sentences filled with contempt for your lack of ability your lack of fluency in the English or whatever other language that is non-negotiable apart from that I think a certain honesty mm. a certain willingness not to hold back what you really think of any particular situation readers may not be able to analyze a piece of writing and explain what they find so objectionable about it but readers can tell if somebody is a phony if mm. if this writer is not telling the truth and I'm not talking about the kind of truth that emerges or should emerge in a court of law I'm talking about the truth of what is going on in his own, in his own mind I think that kind of honesty uh, is essential to uh, all forms of artistry I think that's important for to to make anything that's good otherwise um, you're left with something that's not quite whole in mm. itself if it's something mechanical more than something uh organic and genuine yes um but it's interesting that you that you say this because it, it kind of comes from shows that it comes from deep within you uh, rather than from somewhere external uh yeah. so i i respect that very much i that's a that's a technique to writing that i probably more admirable in my eyes than uh than some other people who are who choose to push themselves into a sort of metallic 
technique to where they they become more of the machine than uh, what they should be saying to the reader. Yes, I think so. Defining honesty where art is concerned is extremely difficult, but we all recognize it when we see it. What's very important for for an artist or a writer, I'd say. When you, um, I think when you wrote, uh, I looked up uh, your your list of novels and uh, uh, things that you've previously written, and one kind of the premise that I found quite interesting was in your novel uh, The Break, which was uh, a, I found I found it quite interesting because it was like a reverse post-apocalyptic. Uh, situation where you had uh, you had the entire island of Britain kind of thrown back in time. Is that correct? That is so. Yes, thrown back to ten sixty four. Yeah, and so they were normally you have a lot of times you've had a, or people have had protagonists kind of displaced in time with superior technology or what have you, uh, but you kind of took this entire society and uh uh put it back in time and then watch it devolve uh to the point where like you you do get uh, a situation that normally happens with like oh a meteor hit and now everyone is you know returning to like a, a tribal kind of state of mind or something or some such or you know the zombies have attacked and now everyone is uh kind of clustering and grabbing for resources but instead you you still have like a world that exists and it's not necessarily a disaster that happened to the continent but like the the situation ends up being remarkably similar uh even though you've you've uh thrown your heroes back in time instead of uh forward in time or into some other kind of situation so i like that uh premise a lot it was very interesting, and I, uh, I thought that was very nice. Uh, and you say that when you write, kind of from an inspirational uh, perspective, that must have felt uh, very close to you, uh, kind of in a way that, like you, I know you're very fervent um, on your political views, and uh, this sort of served as a political allegory for Brexit. Uh, I suppose but, it did, really, yes. <laughs> um, but just, uh, just the, the, the whole concept was very interesting. Uh, and it also works uh, in tandem with a lot of your historical novels uh, that you've written. Yes. Yeah. And that, the, it seems to be a common theme in your writing with drawing from history and uh, taking lessons uh, that could be used today from uh, historical examples. Um is there a reason that you you tend to focus your novels on uh, on like historical points of view, or uh, or these sort of lessons from history? I find historical novels very easy to write. I know a lot about history, and I do make sure to I make sure to get get as much authenticity as I can. 
so yes i do enjoy writing historical fiction i find it rather easy to write and my only regret is that i haven't written as much as perhaps i could have done but i have spent several years not writing fiction because the well because the earnings aren't there i don't expect to make any money at all from the present novel but i'm writing it because i want to well that's an interesting thing to discuss as well is that you are uh, self-sustainable as a writer you you make your money your main source of income is writing which is uh, is that true no my main source of income is from teaching oh well you certainly make a lot more money than either of us do writing um i have made a lot more money than you have but at the, for the past just few... in general yes i've made <laughs> very... <laughs> I want... what do you think would you like to explain what changed that made it so much more difficult to make a living as a fiction writer for anyone who you who might want to be where you you need to be in it for love not money these days unfortunately by the sound of it there's a number of reasons one is that until about 20 years ago there was a filter if you wanted to publish, if you wanted your novel to be published, you had to find a publishing company, and before you could do that, you needed to find an agent who was willing to submit your work to a publishing company because most of them won't take unagented manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And this was a double filter. First of all, you needed an agent who was willing to take you on, and then the agent had to persuade a publisher to take you on, and that limited the amount of fiction that could easily be produced. There has always been self-published fiction, but the vanity publishing market, which I experienced at first hand 30 and 40 years ago, was always the most dispiriting end of the publishing market. It was one giant ripoff. You would produce what you thought was a deathless masterpiece, and by the time it had been produced, 10 or 20,000 copies because of economies of scale, wire-bound photocopied typescript filled with mistakes of every possible kind no isbn no possibility of getting it into the bookshops no possibility of newspaper reviews you would end up with 40 or 50 large cardboard boxes which on your death would be put into your your garage that's it whereas nowadays what you do is you produce your you produce your text, you then format it. There is a great deal of skill involved in the correct proofing and the formatting and the general production of a book. I don't claim to be perfect, but I know more about it than most people do. And that having been done, you just put it all up onto Amazon, which is the biggest book marketplace in the world. And as long as you have done the job properly you will sell some copies they may not sell in sufficient numbers to let you give up your day job but you will sell some copies and because of that the number of new novels appearing in english on amazon every day the last time i looked was running at about four thousand that's four thousand new novels appearing on amazon every day and now that people are beginning to get their artificial intelligence machines to churn the stuff out, I imagine that will rise to ten or 20,000 a day. It is very difficult to stand out 
when you're dealing with that kind of mass of new, shall I call it literature, of new writings, let's say. That's probably a better term for it. Yes. Uh, do you have any uh, advice or ideas, I think, uh, on this standing out? Because I, I think that's the game that we're all playing now. What I say sounds very naive, but it's the best I can say. If what you've written is any good, it will eventually be recognised. It may not be recognised in the next few... It may not be recognised for many years. It may not be recognised in your own lifetime, but um, quality will eventually stand out. That's good advice. And at least I feel like as a writer you should be aiming for quality because that's your face, right? Yes. I take pride in getting the sentence right. I want it to I want it to read like butter spreads when it's been left out the fridge all night. Mm. I that's what I aim for. And unfortunately, I'm so perfectionist a lot of the time I can't let go. If the paragraph doesn't read like that, I'll be laboring on it for days, um, and that might not that 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 does not suit the mass market with um, AI machines. Maybe the AI machine will get it to read like butter spreads when it's been left out of the fridge when I can't, and that will be a great help. But for the for the moment, um, uh, I'm just going to have to. I I just can't see myself lowering my standards, you know. No. Um, one of the things that I noticed that I've noticed is you do you, you teach classics um, as in, I don't mean classics as in uh, Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice, but um, uh, harkening back to Greek and Rome, and certainly you've got a great love for them. So maybe mm. you can speak about that, including what you think they have to offer a contemporary audience. The Greek and Latin classics are works of timeless value. They are the foundations of our civilization, and we have a duty to ourselves not to forget those classics, and indeed, where possible, to acquire the necessary linguistic skills to read them in the original. A good translation a very good translation will never capture the entirety of the original and quite often where the Greek and Roman classics are concerned it is the language itself which is part of the artistry of the works. Mm, the use of language um, so I, I, you must be lamenting at a culture that says well Latin is a dead language why would you want to why would you want to learn that? because it is part of what our civilization is about. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors wrote in Latin, our ancestors read Latin. There is a vast amount of literature written in Latin and in Greek, which is of first-rate quality, and it is worth learning. Mm -hmm. Now, what I, what I could say is that the great majority of my students, and all told I must have several hundred, the great majority of my students, and virtually all of my students under the age of 20, are not English, well, they're not British, they're not American, 
they're Chinese. Wow, incredible. And so even when we're going back to philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, have you found something in reading them and, and the plays as well, the great the great playwrights, have you found something in reading them in the original text that um, we are not, that I didn't get, say, studying philosophy at university when I read The Republic? Reading Plato in Greek is, I will say, rather tiresome. I once began book 10 of The Republic, pardon me, I once began book 10 of The Republic with one of my groups. We read it with a commentary in mixed Latin and German, which tried to explain how every time Plato used the word logos, he meant something else. And mm -hmm. We tried to understand what was going on. We failed. We gave up, and we read some Homer instead, which is a great okay. deal more fun. Um, I. It may be that where philosophical works are concerned, most of the original sense, most of the technical sense, is captured by a translation. Yes. But when you're dealing with poetry, when you're dealing with imaginative literature. I would say at least half of what you get through it comes from the words themselves, the sound mm. of words. That mm. is something which a translation can't capture. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I feel like, uh... Oh, well, we're talking about, uh, you use that term, imaginative, imaginative literature. Um, and speaking about poetry as well, I came across uh, Aristotle's poetics uh, recently. It just just by accident, I was looking for a book on screenwriting, and it, it happened to be the ISBN next to it in the library. And the I I don't know any Latin. I'm very proud of the the minor passing grade I got when I was in high school. Uh, but I it caused me to like to to look it up on the internet at least, and for um very, very minimal amount of understanding. I came across this idea that said that Aristotle disagreed with Plato uh, on their definition and in, in value of poetry in that uh, Plato said that poetry was primarily an imitation and nature should be appreciated in its natural state. Whereas Aristotle believed that there was value in this imitation and that uh, there was some sort of something to gain, uh, I believe, by expressing an interpretive stance, I, I think it was, uh, on, on what the artist's view of something was going on. Do you have an opinion on this or, or is this, is, am I gleaning the message correctly? I think you are, and yes. Any kind of art is, it's a selective recreation of reality according to the values of the artist. Now, that's not my opinion, that's Ayn Rand's opinion. That's so I, funny. I, I, I thought it sounded a lot like Ayn Rand. Yes, yes, she stands up <laughs> like a sore thumb, doesn't she? I've never had any particular... I've never thought particularly well of her philosophy, but she was a shrewd critic where artistic matters were concerned. And 
on the whole, I tend to, I may not agree with all her artistic judgments, but I agree with her general grounds of criticism and particularly her, her firm dismissal of modernism. So is there value in that, in that uh, interpretive stance, or do you believe that everything should be kind of appreciated uh, at most in the way that it, it uh, was originally formatted? Or, or... Do translations have any value? Of course they do. Translations have enormous value. What they do is they open a literature to people who would not otherwise be able to, to know it. And although you can say, oh, but the real Homer is the one you read in Greek. Well, that's true, but not everybody wants to spend years learning classical Greek. And for those people who want some exposure to Homer, a good translation is perfectly good. It may be in itself a work of great literature, as Chapman's translation of Homer into English is. I, I wouldn't knock translations. I'm just saying that wherever possible, and wherever you have the inclination and ability to read something in the language in which it was written is a much finer experience mm -hmm. than reading it in translation. At the moment, education in Britain and America is in the grip of two contrary but equally destructive tendencies. You have the you have the cultural Thatcherites who believe that education should always be about the teaching of marketable skills. You do not want children to learn classical Greek because it has no financial value. What you want them to learn is business studies and computer programming and subjects which provide the students with marketable skills. I've always found that a most depressing and indeed a most self-destructive set of opinions. And then you have the then you have the opposing, but as I said, equally destructive um, approach to education in which, well, you can sum it up as the woke PC mindset that um, that the whole of Western literature is one giant conspiracy by dead white men to do over the rest of the world, and that what you need to do is to deconstruct it, even if you can't actually destroy it. And along the way, you remove from it anything that makes it worth studying. Now, mm. I won't say anything about the woke PC view of education, because I think we mostly accept that it is there is an agenda there, and the agenda is destructive from beginning to end. But the cultural Thatcherism, it is a bleak and depressing and utterly false view of education. The idea that education must be entirely about fitting people with marketable skills one of the problems with that approach, one of the most obvious problems with that approach, is that the marketable skills which are allegedly taught in schools and universities are not particularly marketable. If you look at uh, the kind of computer studies that children learn at school, it doesn't even begin to fit you for a job as a computer programmer. 
The business studies that you learn at school does not remotely equip you with the skills needed to begin and to make a success of a business. It is just a series of semi-random facts put together into a structure that can be spoon-fed to the students. You come out of school after five or six years of this stuff and you have learned nothing from it, nothing of any general value, nothing which makes you more interesting, nothing that makes you more able to earn a living. Well, it's Many... good to know that somebody out here is still has serious value uh, put on, placed on art and mm. respects that uh, immutable thing inside of Saul that we need to access in order to create it. Yes, but let's let's look at this. I've never had any particular aptitude for mathematics. I don't much like it. That's my deficiency, not a problem with mathematics. And what you could say, and Rishi Sunak, our glorious leader at the moment, wants everybody to do A-level mathematics at the age of 18. Ridiculous. I'd like to see how that will turn out. But... It is possible to say that I studied algebra at school 50 years ago. And do you know how often I have used algebra in the past 50 years to solve any particular problem that I've had? I have used trigonometry. I have used geometry, but I have never knowingly used any kind of algebraic reasoning. Does that therefore mean that children should not be encouraged to study algebra. It doesn't do that at all. The study of algebra may not give you a set of skills that you can use in your adult years, certainly not to earn a living, but what it does is to train your mind in a particular direction which will make you better able to solve other problems in unexpected ways. In the same way, a deep study of the Greek and Latin classics will not teach you necessarily how to win a case in court. It will not teach you how to build a better bridge. It will not teach you how to sell photocopiers. But what it will do is to give you an outlook on life which will tend to make you more successful and happier in anything that you actually do with your life. That's that quite is, a good point. Yeah, that, thanks. That that's about. We, we we're running out of time, so that's yeah. A, that's about as beautiful a uh, recommendation as I can imagine. It sounded like you had a couple of other things to add to that before nothing. we wrap up. No, nothing really. Okay, we'll give it, go on. It's, it's a good point which end. Say that once more. It's a good point on which to end. Okay. Yes, I would say so. It's quite beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Quite for... much very, very much for coming on the show and, and being our a... guest. It has been most enlightening. Well, and it's a really inspiring interview and makes me feel like good about the idea of writing. It was you. Learned a lot as well. Yes. You must write. One of these days you'll be dead. But if you've written books, a little part of you will carry on. Excellent.
Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Gabb. Thank you for having me and any time. So what did you think of that? That uh, Mr. Gabb is quite the interesting man. He is, uh, I loved how he was very earnest with uh, how passionate he was. He was, mm. he was very true about where his writing comes from. He wanted it to be honest. And that's a very respectable quality in an artist. Mm -hmm. I, I like that about him. He's, I feel like he's so wise and what I'm trying to get out of him is like that these jet he's like he's like the last person on earth who can still read hieroglyphics or something like that at the end of Egypt or something like that. Like <laughs> I feel like we need to hold on to him and get all of his wisdom out of out of him because he's a representation of an old world that hardly exists. And he, he's made me feel like it's a psyop. Um yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, like 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 um They've they've duped us into thinking that Latin and Greek is boring and pointless and of no relevance to us, and it's all just a big psyop to degrade Western civilization. <laughs> oh no, you <I>, uh, <laughs> didn't quite say that. I know, but I feel, but he made me Latin feel like Greek that. Is boring, like, but it's still very like, valuable. Yes. Yeah, and and I had no sense of why this was relevant to me in school. I felt like it was just being imposed upon me. Yeah. Um, so but you respect him in that way that you do respect a classics professor where it's yeah. like, wow, this guy is so like world smarter than I will ever be. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yes, has invested he's, he's, so much time in his own mind. And he's um, holding up the guard, you know, he's preserving something very precious and he's passing it on. Absolutely. And it's remarkable that most of his students are Chinese. Yeah, that that was interesting to me. I, 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 Curious if he, uh, if that's him teaching online, or if there's a remarkable number of pe uh, Chinese people uh, emigrating to the UK to to study in university. That's that's interesting. Well, I mean, I'd be thrilled to have him on the show again in the future. So absolutely, maybe, yeah, uh, another month or two. That's good. There are plenty of questions still yet to ask him. Right. Well, you guys at home, thanks for listening. I hope you got something out of that because i know i sure as hell did yeah so great for the evening go learn latin that's the message today <laughs> as, as, i mean why haven't you learned it yet why haven't yeah, you learned it yet problem why aren't you Time learning it right now you need to write in latin because yes. one day you will be dead and you should be understood so yeah. go write yourself write yourself okay. yeah Oh, oh, and remember that we now have an Instagram. That's right, we're selling out uh, one platform at a time. So go find the Go Write Yourself Instagram and go write yourself in pictures. Lots of text to be had.